Good morning, everyone. Maybe after that introduction um, and after hearing my sermon today, you probably hope that I stick with just doing notices. Uh, my name, as, uh, as I was introduced before, is Austin. I am a pastoral intern here at Sovereign Grace Warunga, and it is just my delight to open up God's Word with you here in the third sermon in our uh, current sermon series, Risk is Right. You know, the, the pastoral team's um, heart and prayer for us during the course of this set of sermons is that, you know, paradigms may be shifted during the course of this sermon series, that things that we once viewed as, you know, too risky, too, too dangerous, too, too reckless, too costly, would increasingly not be seen as risk, but as opportunities because of and for the sake of the gospel. And you know what a wonderful job Brendan did last week, didn't he, in showing us that the gospel completely transforms the way that we view risk in, re- in relation to our friendships. Well then, for today, we are covering the topic of risk being right in terms of how we rest. Rest? Rest, you're thinking? Risk and rest? Really? Some of you may be thinking that this must be, you know, the soft sermon that the pastoral team must have thrown into the sermon series to soften us up the more cushiony topic before they get to the real heavy and risky topics of giving and missions. But you know what? Let us use this opportunity to, um, today to honestly discern both our cultural moment and our own lives. To see that as a culture and as individuals, we don't have exactly a healthy relationship to rest, do we? No, friends, we live in a culture that is frenzied with activity and productivity. I mean, if you look at any, any recent wide-scale employee survey, you discover that the percentage of employees in any given year, in the last few years, that have experienced burnout, the statistic sits at about, about between 60% to, 60, uh, to 70%. And you know, Microsoft came out with a recent study And they said that Australia was at the higher end of this scale. We are well above the global average in terms of burnout. And feeding this fact is that we live in a culture that is just absolutely obsessed with productivity. You look at the, I mean, you look it up on your phone, the sheer number of podcasts that are dedicated to the latest and greatest ways to increase and optimize your productivity. You know, one of the first articles to hit my news feed in 2023 was this one. New year, new you. How to have the most productive working day of your life. Right? And if you recognize any of the jargon from this newspaper article, such as the Pomodoro technique, time boxing, email batching, you would realize that the cultural air that we breathe is just absolutely drenched with that obsession with productivity. In fact, a new term that was coined just this last year was this term, productivity paranoia. Productivity paranoia is this phenomenon. It's probably not, not best described as a phenomenon. It's a vicious cycle where managers actually have a lingering suspicion that their employees aren't working hard enough, whilst the actual metrics of number of hours worked 
the number of meetings attended, and every other activity metric has actually increased. That's productivity paranoia for you. But all these examples that I've mentioned only cover just the professional sphere. I haven't covered anything with regards to the personal sphere in terms of pursuing accreditations, new workout regimes, personal best running times, home renovations, music lessons, private tuition, boot camps, club soccer. Now, none of these are inherently bad, but the pressure for us to fit all these things in is. You see, this is not just a cultural phenomenon that's happening you know, out there, but let's be honest, this mentality drives many of us right here. And this is why rest, rest as defined in the scriptures, seems like a, like a nice-to-have but just unattainable concept. And this is why, ultimately, why rest for many of us is risky. So what I'm going to try to do today is trace out the story of rest as it's presented in Scripture. And as tempting as it is for me to do a full-blown, you know, biblical theology of rest, pardon, pardon the pun, but that would just be too exhaustive, as the Bible actually, what I want to do is I want to give a brief overview of what the Bible is actually to say about this. And this brief overview, I'm going to split up into five different parts. These are the five points of the sermon. Number one, rest as established in creation. Number two, restless humanity because of the fall. Number three, rest recovered in redemption. Uh, Number four, eternal rest in the new creation. And finally, I want to finish with point number five, the discipline of making this story of rest our story. And through all of this, if there is one desire, if there's one takeaway that I long, that I pray for everyone to remember as they step out of here, particularly in the moments of life where we are tempted just to power on through it, it's this one thing, the essence, the essence of true rest is ceasing from trusting in our own works and trusting instead in the finished work of God in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again, the essence of true rest is ceasing from trusting in your own works and instead trusting in the finished work of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, let's start with the story. We're going to start right at the beginning, the very beginning. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. This is what it tells us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. You see, the primordial earth is described here as this, you know, massive globe of unceasingly restless oceans covered in utter darkness. And you know what God starts to do in his creative work? Part of his first creative act was that God starts to do this. He starts to separate. You see, God establishes what we call the necessary forms for his creative work. Like an artist, you know, splitting up his canvas into different sections for different features of his painting. This is what God starts to do. This is what he does in order to bring order out of darkness and emptiness 
and a chaotic canvas. God draws out boundaries. He carves out perimeters. He marks out thresholds. And this is what I mean. In his creation of light, he basically is saying, stop darkness, creep no further. In his creation of the earth, he's saying, stop heavens, descend no lower. In his creation of the land, he's telling the waters, stop waters, you shall rage no closer. In other words, a huge part of God's work of creation was his setting of boundaries. It was his declaring, stop, be still. But what I really want to bring to our attention is the final boundary that God establishes in his creation work. Come with me to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Church, can you see the final boundary that God establishes in creation? In the absence of any explicit command, in the stillness of God's finished work, God establishes the idea of rest. In the paradox of silence, he unmistakably declares, stop work, you shall come no further. And this final boundary that was established between work and rest is so fundamental that we see it as a repeating theme throughout the rest of scriptures. You see, rest rest at its very core is a celebration of the fact that God, not us, but God is a finisher of the work that he starts. At God's command, darkness dare not overstep its boundary into the territory of light. At God's command, the heavens remain distinct from the earth. At God's command, the waters remain unimposing upon the land. But what about our work? What about our work? How are you going in drawing these boundaries in your life? How often do you consciously set apart time just to stop? How often do you draw that line to set apart time just to be still, a time that is kept holy to the Lord? You know, if you're anything like me, then stopping feels infinitely more difficult than going. Going's easy, but stopping is difficult, very difficult. In the article in a magazine called the 1843 Magazine, it's a culture magazine, um, and uh, they get feature articles from different uh, writers. They get a psychoanalyst by the name of Josh Cohen, and he writes this about one of his patients. This is what he writes. It should come up on the screen. A patient of mine named Elliot recently took a week off from his demanding job as a GP. He felt burnt out, and he... He badly needed to rest. The plan was to, you know, sleep in late, read a novel, take the odd leisurely walk, maybe catch up on Game of Thrones. But somehow, somehow, he found himself instead packing his schedule with art museums, concerts, theaters, meetings with friends in hot new bars and restaurants. Then there were the visits to the gym, Spanish lessons, some flat pack furniture assemblage. During the first of his twice-weekly counseling session, he wondered if he shouldn't slow down. He felt as as exhausted as ever. You see, friends, from the very beginning, 
a critical element of the created order was the concept of stopping and resting. Yet for many of us, Elias' experience is very much our experience, isn't it? Stopping feels impossible. And so the question then remains, why? Why is it so difficult for us to stop? And the answer to this actually lies in the next part of our story. Part two, restless humanity in the fall. Come with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We have this very well-known account of Adam and Eve and the serpent and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's pick up the story from verse, uh, verse 6 in chap- chapter 3 of Genesis. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Listen carefully. Listen carefully to this bit. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Contrary to popular notion, the world's oldest profession is actually that of the fashion designer. (laughs) Friends, this is the first act of industry. This is the very first instance of human work and productivity. And the loincloths were the very first human product. You know, if my imagination serves me correctly, this is what must have happened. Adam and Eve must have been darting back and forth in the garden, stripping the garden of vines and leaves, their hands fumbling as they tried to tie these leaves together, howling in agony, their eyes filled with tears, their heart filled with dread, all in the vain attempt that by the work of their hands, they can somehow clothe themselves with some sort of dignity, some sort of certainty, with some sort of security again. I tell you, friends, I tell you, friends, if it were not for the sound of the Lord God walking in the midst of the garden, if it were not for the Lord God drawing near to them, my guess, my guess is that Adam and Eve would have spent a thousand unceasing years sitting there, ignoring one another, tweaking and and, and trying to perfect these loincloths that they had made for themselves with blistered and bloodied hands, ever working but never finishing. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Humanity, humanity falls into into sin And what is our first impulse? Our first impulse is to work. It's to work. Our fallen condition drives us to this corrupted form of work, a work that is fueled by, number one, shame. The eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. For the very first time, their eyes looked on in horror at the fact that their sin had stripped them of their once beautiful covering of holy innocence. They were now ashamed of who they were. Number two, the illusion of control. You see, being made in the image of God 
and therefore having you know, creative abilities, they then convinced themselves that, were, that they were able to manage this broken situation themselves. They thought that, that by the work of their hands, they could somehow control the fallout from their sin. Much like a child, much like a child who breaks his mother's favorite antique vase, and he thinks to himself that he can sticky tape it back together again. Number three, insecurity. First and foremost, they had no confidence of where they now stood in relation to God. But secondly, they had no confidence in where they stood in relation to one another. They had a a broken marriage right there. But on top of that, they were meant to rule over creation, and yet they fell for the lie of a creature. So they no longer had confidence in where they stood in terms of the created order. You know, are the beasts of their field still their friend, or are they foe now? Would the plants still yield seed? Would the trees still produce fruit? You see, friends, they fell into a deep insecurity. These three factors, shame, the illusion of control, and insecurity, drove them to a corrupted form of work. And if we are honest with ourselves today, there is ample evidence that these three pathologies continues to plague us today. Shame. You know, from the subtle dropping in a conversation of how much revenue that we brought in to the firm last year, to the standard reply of, to the question of, how are you, to, oh, I'm really busy, because any other response would smack of laziness. We are people who have turned to our work in order to cover for our shame. The illusion of control from the, from the manager in the office who finds it just so difficult to let go and to trust his staff. To the parent who micromanages every aspect of family life and even over-engineers the family picnic. We are people who are craving for control. And lastly, insecurity from the Israelite who decided, I'm going to pick up more than a day's worth of manna. That's insecurity. To the person who derives an inordinate satisfaction in, in terms of logging on and checking their bank balance. We are people who are deeply insecure. Shame, the illusion of control, and insecurity has driven us to this anxious activity. Anxious activity to somehow restore our identity. You see, work, work in, in itself is not bad. Industry is not inherently corrupt. But what makes rest so risky is when we look to our work, when we look to our accomplishments, when we look to our achievements, when we look to our performance, whether professional or whether personal, and we look to it as a source of our redemption. We look to our industry to define our identity. We look to our industry to define our identity. Our value is tied to our output, and therefore we dare not rest. It's just too risky. There's just too much at stake. From the spouse who continually calls home, and I'm guilty of it. Sorry, sweetheart, I'm going to be running late. I, I just need to just do one more email. To the mother, the stay at home mother, who is haunted by the idea that there is always more she could do and more she should do for her kids. To the teacher whose mind runs into overdrive with lesson planning ideas. 
We are all part and parcel of a system that dares not rest. Oh, friends, in our fallen condition, there lives within our hearts a Pharaoh. There lives within our heart a Pharaoh that unceasingly berates us, saying, More bricks, no straw. More bricks, no straw. In our fallen condition, we find ourselves in an Egypt of sorts where our worth is determined by our output, an Egypt that refuses to let us go. But the thing is, even if it did, where would we go? Where would we go? Returning to our friend Elliot, the exhausted GP from the 1843 magazine article, this is what Josh Cohen, his psychoanalyst, so insightfully writes about him and probably about us too. When Eliot protests that he can't just do nothing, he is seeing and judging himself from the perspective of a culture that looks with disdain at anything that smacks of inactivity. Under constant self-scrutiny as to whether he is being sufficiently productive, he feels what? He feels ashamed when he judges himself to come up short in this regard. But this leaves him at once too drained to work and unable to rest. How insightful is that? So where to from here? Is this the end of the story? Is this the end of our story? Has our work just been permanently corrupted? And has true rest just faded into a fantasy? Well, at this point in the sermon, I have really two options for you. I've got two options. I can either give you some practical tips to help you, you know, establish those boundaries in your life, to help, help you better carve out time to rest, you know, life hacks, life hacks to help you strike a better work-life balance. But, you know, if I do that, if I do that, all I am giving you is just that, hacks. I will be merely fulfilling the role of a self-care consultant. In fact, if you ever browse at some of the secular literature out there that advocates for rest, you will quickly see that the, often the reason that they tell you you should rest is because it refreshes you and also it increases your efficiency for your work. And as true as that is, and as good as that is, right? can you see what they're doing? They are just turning your eyes back to your work. They're just turning their eyes back to our work. It's improving our efficiency to work, and therefore it just becomes, rest just becomes a means to an end for us improving our work, improving our accomplishments, improving our own achievements, improving our performance. Now, what we need to hear today is the essential reason, the fundamental basis for why we can rest, the fundamental basis for why we can rest. Then and only then have we had good news preached to us. Here we go, part three, rest recovered in redemption. Keep your Bibles open to Genesis chapter three because in that very same chapter where Adam and Eve fell into anxious activity, we also begin to see God's tender hand in lifting them up and out of their wretched restlessness. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. You see, friends, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Adam and Eve, in their frantic attempt to clothe themselves, 
with some sort of dignity again, their attempt was in utter vain. They themselves knew their attempts fell short. They knew that their work was grossly inadequate. Grossly inadequate. You know why? Because even after they made fig leaves for themselves, what did they do when they heard God? They still had to run and hide behind the trees. But God, God in his tenderness begins his redemptive work. He makes for Adam and his wife new coverings. He sees their shame, and though he was under no obligation to lift them up out of it, in his mercy and his grace, he provides for them a new covering. Notice also, there is no doubt, there is no doubt who is actually in control from the fallout of their sin. Who is in control? God doesn't take their, you know, their fig leaf garments. He doesn't take their fig leaf garments and make improvements to it, does he? He begins a new work. No, this new garment is entirely a work of God. And in his clothing of them and in his promise to bruise the head of the serpent, God grants them a renewed sense of security in his redemptive work. In other words, he assures them that he is still for them. Lastly, lastly, we must not miss the fact that these garments that God made for them were garments of what? Garments of skin, of animal skin. A price was paid, a life was taken, blood was shed in order for them to be clothed. Oh, brothers and sisters, God set to work on that very same day which we fell in Adam. God set to work to bring us into a state of rest again. And this work finds its climatic completion at the cross of Jesus Christ. Have you wondered, let me ask you friends, have you wondered why every single one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, every single one of the Gospels records the fact that Jesus was stripped of his garments when he was crucified on the cross. John 19, verses 23 to 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. Oh, church, behold the Lamb of God, whose garments of perfect righteousness was stripped from him and placed upon you. You know, in ancient Israel, the garment of the high priest was woven seamlessly, just like Jesus's, in one piece from top to bottom. And so it was at the cross, the great high priest, Jesus Christ, steps into our place, both as the priest and as the sacrificial lamb. And he took upon himself our shame. Our shame. At the cost of his life, he clothed us again. You know, the reality was, the reality is that if even we had an eternity to sew for ourselves loincloths to cover our shame, we would never finish our work. We would never finish our work. Yet in the very same chapter where Jesus was stripped of his garments, what does it say? It says this, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is 
finished. And friends, this is why Jesus doesn't say to us, he doesn't say to us, go there or try this method or don't do this if you're trying to rest. What does Jesus say? Jesus ultimately says, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, we don't go to some technique. We don't go to some method, some resting strategy, but we go to a person for our rest. The essence of true rest is ceasing from trusting in our own works and resting in the finished work of the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, there is a work that needs to be done to restore us from our brokenness, to restore the conflict that we have with God, the shame and the insecurity that our sin brought, but this is not a work that you need to do. It is a work that has been done by God in Jesus Christ. As Augustine said so perfectly, our hearts, our hearts are restless. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. This now brings us to the final chapter in the story of rest in the Scriptures. You see, from the very beginning, an eternal rest was actually always part of God's plan. It wasn't plan B. This was always part of God's plan. After each of the first six days of creation, we find the phrase, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day or the second day, all the way up to the sixth day. Yet this phrase is completely missing when it comes to the seventh day, when God finished his work and he rested on that day. That's all it says. It rested on the seventh day. There was no evening or morning mentioned. You see, the seventh day, this rest of God was always meant to be never-ending. It's a never-ending rest. And Adam, Adam was invited to, to step into this rest. He was invited to step into his rest. But because of his disobedience, he failed, and therefore we failed to step into this eternal rest of God. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, has made a way. He's made a way for us to step into this eternal rest. And this is where we are right here, right now in history. In this period right here, right now is where we are. Where the rest we have in Jesus is both, yes, it is a reality. It's already a reality. But also, it is not yet a complete reality. Right? If you look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 to 11, it tells us there remains, did you catch that? There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Friends, this tells us that there is a final Sabbath rest that awaits us. It's a future reality as well, that it's in front of us. You know, I couldn't put it better than what our denomination statement of faith says about what awaits us as we enter into this final Sabbath rest. This is what our statement of faith says. It says, God's glorified people will inherit the kingdom from which all sin, 
sorrow, suffering, and death will be banished. Christ, as king, will set all of creation free from its bondage to corruption, making new the heavens and the earth and establishing his eternal rule in his consummated kingdom. Surrounded by unimaginable beauty, we will enjoy unhindered communion with our triune God, beholding him, serving him, worshipping him, and reigning with him forever and ever. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us keep our eyes on this prize. What a glorious hope of future eternal rest that awaits us. And so to help, you know, to help us keep our eyes on this prize, I come to the final point of today's sermon. The discipline of making this story of rest our story. And as I do this, I just want to highlight two very interesting observations from both Hebrews 4 and from also Matthew 11, both passages that I referred to earlier. Firstly, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 to 11, it should come up on your screen. Notice what Hebrews 4 is telling us. It tells us, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Did I read that correctly? It requires Christ striving to enter into the eternal rest. But, but, but to strive means to go all out. It makes, means pull out all the stops. It means make every effort. That doesn't sound like resting to me. And then we have Matthew 11, which I referred to earlier. It should come up on the screen again. Here, Jesus promises rest for our souls on one hand. And then in the very next sentence... He invites us to put on a yoke. A yoke is for manual labor. A yoke is a, is, a, is a wooden beam that is placed on animal like oxen so they can pull a load together. I mean, this seems confusing. Jesus invites us to come rest, yet we are to strive and to, to labor. I mean, which one is it, Lord? To which the answer is yes. You see, brothers and sisters, As we come to Jesus, we discover that the essence of true rest is ceasing from trusting in our own works and trusting in God's finished work in Christ Jesus. But we must also strive and labor to make this a reality in our lives, to be disciplined in avoiding the temptation of going back and trusting in the work of our own hands, trusting in trying to build an identity for ourselves, trusting in storing up security for ourselves in the work of our hands. And that is the reason it is good. It is good for our souls to strive, to press forward, to be yoked to, to allow Jesus to set the pace for our lives. It is good to put his practices and his disciplines into practice for our own rest. So what I want to do now is cover some of those disciplines, some of these principles which the Lord has given us to train us in his goodness, to train us to rest solely upon his finished work. And as I do this, let me just say this. Many good theologians have a range of views as to the extent that the Sabbath applies for Christians today. And that makes me a little bit hesitant to say that these principles are mandatory for Christians 
But at the same time, I have no qualms whatsoever in saying that though they aren't mandatory, all of these principles are necessary for our spiritual well-being. Not mandatory, but necessary for our spiritual well-being. Principle number one, make a practice of regular stopping. You know, as we talked about earlier, rest was established in creation as God drew this unmistakable line between work and rest. And this idea then takes root as God um, gives the fourth commandment to Israel to rest, to stop for the Sabbath. On top of that, God also gave Israel this principle of stopping and resting every seventh year, not to farm the land, and every 50th year also, just to give the land some rest. So the principle, the principle that we can glean from this it is good for God's people to have a regular and tangible expression of their trust in him as they cease, as we cease from our works. You know, I remember when I was studying for my chartered financial analyst exams, and for each level of the, there's three levels of these exams, the general rule of thumb is that in order to pass, you had to study 300 hours. That was the rule of thumb. And these exams were held in the first weekend of June every year, globally. Everyone sits down and takes these exams globally in the first weekend of June. And so the saying in the office went, kiss your sweetheart goodbye on Valentine's Day and bunker down between mid-Feb and early June, which meant that you had about 17 weeks. You got about 17 weeks to cover all the content at a pace of about 18 hours of study per week over that 17 weeks on top of your work responsibilities. However, during this period, I made a personal resolution that I would pack up the books, pack up the books on Saturday night, and I would not study on Sundays. Because if I did, I knew that my head and my heart would drift off to my studies as I sat there in church worship. I knew that my head and my heart would drift off while the preacher was talking. Was it a risk? Was it a risk doing that? Oh, definitely. Definitely, especially when I came in on Monday mornings and I heard just how much my other colleagues had studied over the weekend. But was it worth it? Was it worth it? Oh, definitely. It was just such a a good thing. It was a sweet thing, to be honest. It was a sweet thing to physically close the books and have my heart trained to just stop and surrender it to the Lord. Principle number two. Stopping is not enough, though. We must press on into delight and worship. Remember at the beginning of the sermon how I described God started his creative work by carving out these boundaries. For the first three days of creation, God was drawing these boundaries, establishing the forms of light and dark, of you know, heaven and earth, of land and sea. But what I didn't mention was God then, what do you do after he established these forms? He filled these forms. He filled this space. He filled the heavens with sun, moon, and stars. He filled the the sea with swarms of sea creatures. He filled the heavens with birds. And he filled the land with beast and man. You see, you can set apart time to stop. But this time is only kept holy if you fill it with the delight and the worship of God. You know, you've got, on one hand, you've got the individualist who says, when I stop, 
This time is for me. This is me time when I stop. Then on the other hand, you've got the legalistic Pharisee, right? Who is so engrossed in getting the forms right with all the things that you can and can't do on the Sabbath that they also miss the point of the Sabbath. Both the individualist and the legalist have got it wrong because they, they fail to press into the actual substance of what the Sabbath is about, and that is filling it with worship and delight in the Lord, the Lord of the Sabbath. Principle number three, resting in community. You know, when you look forward in hope to the eternal rest that awaits us, what do you see? What do you visualize when you think of that eternal rest that Hebrews talks about? Do you see yourself tucked away in this nice private villa on some private beach somewhere? Well, I'll tell you what the Apostle John John saw when he had a vision. And he had a vision, I'll tell you that. He looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and, and, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh, church, you know, when we strive to enter this rest here now, we must always have a theologically informed vision before us. And this vision of rest that we are given, this vision of rest that we are given is overwhelmingly corporate, isn't it? There's people all around from every nation and language and tribe. You know, so for introverts like me, this is scary. (laughs) This is risky. But I have to preach to myself that now, here now, in my anticipatory rest, in it, it must be reflective of that final rest. I must learn now that our final rest is a corporate joy. Let me just pause there for a moment. And I'm going to state the obvious. You know where I'm leading with this. I'm going to state the obvious. If you put these first three principles together, number one, make a regular practice of stopping. Number two, not just stopping, but pressing on into worship. And number three, do it in community. It becomes very obvious that the clearest expression of this is what we're doing right here, right now, isn't it? Every time we gather together, resting in the finished work of Christ, we are a living expression of a people who have been given the fundamental reason to stop who have been given the fundamental reason to worship, who have been given the fundamental reason to gather together in community. Right here, right now, we are a microcosm, a window for the world to look in and see the eternal rest to come. The Sunday church gathering has become the epicenter of God's rest in a restless world. I would again shy away from saying that the Sunday gathering is mandatory, but it is oh so necessary for our souls in a world that dares not stop. Also, don't underestimate the evangelistic value of simply making it known to your family and friends that this is what you do on a Sunday. That you make it a priority for you and your family. It is a declaration to unbelievers 
that your master is no longer Pharaoh, that your worth is no longer in your productivity because you can stop, and your hope is no longer in Egypt, but you are destined for the new Jerusalem. Principle number four, last one, overflow. Okay, the last principle that I want to share with you is overflow. Even though, you know, our official time here of stopping and worshipping together comes to an end at about 11.30, hopefully, (laughs) let us not rush back to our work if our official time is over here. May there be an overflow. Is there an overflow of what happens here into the rest of your lives? You may want an overflow of the principle of stopping for the, for the rest of the day. So instead of preparing for that work presentation when you get home, you intentionally go out for a leisurely walk so that you can enjoy God's creation. This is overflow. You may want an overflow of the principle of worship. So what you do is you gather together as a family over lunch and you spend time pressing worshipfully into the things that your children have learnt in SG Kids. And what a wonderful job our SG Kids team have done in providing us an outline of what they actually cover so that we can press into it worshipfully as we gather for family lunch. Or you might want to do this with your spouse or even in a devotional personally. You know, with Ivy and I, we have learnt, admittedly, over time, and it hasn't come overnight by any means, but we have learnt the delight of devoting Sunday evenings to just stopping and just leisurely discussing and sharing and praying into a sermon. This is overflow. Or maybe you want overflow by applying the corporate principle of rest. And what a treat it is sometimes just to put out an extra set of plates and share a meal with someone from church, brothers and sisters, just to have that unrushed time with them. This is overflow. You know, let me finish our time here together by sharing a story with you. I was uh, once chatting uh, with a colleague um, who actually had a degree in geography, even though we worked in financial services together. So I guess it was different, so we started talking about it. And he told me that he used to be part of a team that worked for you know, a lo- local government agency in the UK who would perform analysis as to whether it would be worthwhile to salt the roads in anticipation of potential snow. So I asked him, you know, why doesn't the local government just salt the roads anyway? It would be safer that way. And then he smirked at me and said, Austin, because it costs money. Then he went on to describe how their team would calculate the probability of an injury or fatality if there was, you know, based on the geography of the road, And then they'll also factor in the cost of compensation if there was an injury or fatality. And also, listen to this. They will also factor in the expected loss of economic, potential economic output from an injury or fatality. Only when the sum total of this calculation was more than the cost of getting the salt trucks on the road would they do it. You see, friends, we live in a world at the heart of it where we are valued by our productivity in our ability for activity. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our objective value is not found in our work. It's not found in our work. But we can rest 
in his finished work at the cross. Let us rest in the good of this. How about I pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, you are just so good to us. You are so good to us. Rest for your people was on your heart from the very beginning. From the very beginning. You had it in your plan. It wasn't a plan B. And even when we fell from that rest into a restless state, you rescued us from that. You recovered our rest. And it wasn't free, but it was costly for you. It was costly for you. It was risky for you in one sense. And yet you did it. You brought us into a state of rest. And then you set before us a vision, a vision for eternal rest here and now. So today we worship you in resting in the truth that you are God who finishes completely and finally all the work that you have done that you have started from creation to redemption. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.